welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. Hey Miles, welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. How are we doing? I'm good, thank you, Danny. Thank you for having me. No, no, it's an absolute pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. So, always want to kind of get straight in there, Miles. Can I just ask you to pick six? Um, what I want you to do is pick four numbers, please. Four um, numbers from one to a hundred. One to a hundred. Okay, seventy-three. Uh, yep. Fifty. Fifty. Twenty-five. Okay. And ninety-one. Perfect. We shall return to them a little bit later on. Okay, it's very mysterious. Thank you. Always, always. So, when I have my guests on Mars, I tend to ask them to try and summarise or come up with a logline of what mm. summarises them. Um, can you remember what yours was? I think I can. I can come up with something that I think it should be. Go for um, it. Yeah, an, an interesting challenge this was for me. I hadn't. I hadn't really seen the, the idea of a logline before, and then read some brilliant ones, and then felt the pressure. Uh, <laughs> but I'll have a go. So I'd say that I am someone who's been working for twenty-five plus years in the digital world and I'm now trying to bring my experience and insights to learning teams and organizations who are struggling with what to do about digital now. Okay. Okay. So we were we definitely going to jump into that one. Okay. So I guess before we get into kind of a good question, Miles, you know, when you was in school and the teacher would come up to you and say, Miles, what is it you want to be when you grow up? Can you remember what you used to say to them teachers? I think so if I could have two answers to that one I think when I when I was at primary school so when I you know when I was wearing and I, I went to primary school in an era where we used to wear short trousers so okay. when I when I was that age I wanted to be a professional cricketer I think okay. um, and then when I got older sort of teenage plus then I wanted to be a musician and I'd still want to be a musician actually I think if I, if I could do anything that's what I'd do perfect perfect so I guess yeah let's kind of um, you know Miles, we've spoke, we, we kind of engage on, on LinkedIn and whatnot, but I guess mm-hmm. for, for some of my listeners who might not know who you are, maybe you could give us a bit of a, a whistle-stop tour of, of who you are and kind of where you've come from to where you are right now. Yeah, okay, right. So I'll start, um, I guess, so I left university a very, very long time ago and was uh, uh, very quickly encouraged by my bank manager to pay back my overdraft. And then I start. I sort of fell into um, doing work in um, information research in banking um, for corporate banking. So people doing big deals needed lots of kind of industry analysis and information. Um, and I moved from that. I didn't like the I didn't like the world of corporate banking at all. It didn't fit me very well. Um, so I moved from that. Then I'm so having said I didn't like that. I then moved to management consulting, which was probably not necessarily a brilliant sidestep. Um, but I did have a very good time at Anderson Consulting for about four or five years um, doing information and strategy research. So this is kind of corporate strategy research for a variety of different projects and clients, which taught me a lot about business. It taught me a lot about kind of strategic imperatives. It's where I first got into what we now call digital as well. I guess that was when we were working with what we used to call the information superhighway back in the uh, in the kind of mid '90s, when when the information superhighway was going to change the world, um, and so that really was my first exposure to working with, with, you know, with technology at work, which is nothing like that. It was nothing to do with anything I'd done before. Um, I, I moved from Anderson Consulting because I found that that culture really swallowed me, and I was very uncomfortable with it. I was very unhappy there, um, personally. Um, and then I, I sort of took took a left turn into the BBC. I started working then um, in BBC Worldwide, which was the commercial arm of the BBC. It's what that was then called. Uh, worked uh, way, way back when in what was uh, um, BBC Learning in, in the commercial environment. So working on content for schools and colleges um, for BBC IP. Um, and then I, 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 I left the BBC. I did come back, um, but, but I left the BBC at that point and uh, um, went to work at... Um, through, I oh, saw I've got that chronology wrong actually. Now then, I went I went to Andersons, and then I then I came back to the BBC later, um, and I I worked at the, the BBC in what was called BBC Corporate Strategy, um, in around the sort of the turn of the millennium, and the late nineties, and that was that's where I really got into I think what we would now call online and digital, where I worked with with various teams on the early days of the BBC online service. So it's where BBC Education, BBC News, and the BBC website started. Uh, so worked on the kind of audience strategy and the content strategy and measurement and analysis. 
for those services. So that, that and that that was really you know where, where I sort of, um, cut my teeth, I suppose, on on um, planning and managing digital services or working on them. Anyway, I wasn't senior enough to really manage them at that time. And then um, from there, back in 2000, 2001, um, I, like everyone else, decided to leave the BBC to, to become a millionaire and work in an internet startup. Um, and I did that for nine months and notably and famously, along with millions of others, didn't become a millionaire, um, but was uh, left after nine months because the, the founders very smartly thought, we're not investing in this anymore. Um which was a business-to-business startup. It's like a marketplace for small businesses, a little network and marketplace for small businesses. I, I did work with them on their um, on a kind of metrics and measurement strategy, and a lot, a lot of user experience and user interface work with them um, on membership structure and that kind of thing. And then I, I left that and joined Ask Jeeves, which I don't know. You, you might not be old enough to remember Ask Jeeves, Danny. I don't know. Oh, no, I, I do remember good old you Jeeves. Do. Yes. Yeah. So I worked with Ask Jeeves for, for about seven years, I think. I did, and that was that was a really great time. I remember it very fondly and I learned an enormous amount there. I, I joined Ask Jeeves as a, a, a kind of researcher in the marketing team. And uh, then I moved from that to, uh, took, took on various different roles, sort of more in the kind of analysis and planning, um, worked on the kind of commercial analysis and then spent some time as the director of strategy there and helped sort of put the plans in place to launch from Jeeves into Europe, which was interesting. How do you take a brand like Jeeves into, into continental Europe? Uh, and worked a lot with uh, the US parent company as well and was, was involved in, in plans for, for restructuring the organization, partnerships with Google, uh, etc. And then after, after about seven years, uh, competing with Google in search is tiring, I would say. I wouldn't advise it. Um, and uh, moved from there to back to the BBC. So I went for a second stint at the BBC where I worked in BBC education or what's called BBC Learning. Um, I was. The, I had a very grand job title. I was the head of interactive learning, um, which, oh, wow. yeah, BBC is very good for job title inflation. I think you know, it has it's, it's still people are called. There, well, there was someone who was the controller of the internet at the BBC, <laughs> at one time, as, 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 <laughs> which is possibly the best job title I've ever heard. Controller, comma, internet. Um, but I was the head of interactive learning, which which was really sort of running um, the services online and and on air, but mainly online for schools and colleges and school teachers. So GCSE and BBC Bite Size was the big brand um, in in the stable there. Uh, and then I, I shifted from there to work at the BBC Academy as the head of digital um, when the learning team moved to Salford, um, and I was at the academy for about five years, I think, as the head of digital. Um, and the academy is effectively the BBC's learning and development function. Um, so I was responsible for the technology and the digital strategy and digital content development, product development, etc., for about five years. And then left there to become a freelance consultant about just over three years ago, um, which is what I'm now doing. So I'm, I'm sort of, as, as I was hoping to uh, reference in the log line, um, now trying to sort of make sense and bring to bear that experience um, of various different uh, digital areas and uh, roles and, and sectors to the learning and development world, which is what I've been working in, I suppose, for the last eight years or so. Wow. So, I mean, where do we even start? I, sound, I sounded like I just said a lot of words in, in one stream there. So, yeah, take your pick wherever you want to to light on there. So it's been, it's been a, I guess you could call it a, a varied career or you could call it a series of kind of... A, a, of, of accidents and, and coincidences as well, I think, which is probably the story for many careers, people I know, really, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I reckon so, I reckon so. I think, I mean, int- I inst- instantly want to go into kind of the BBC first, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, sure. what was your, you know, you know, instantly when you hear names like BBC and big names and you, you kind of <clears> assume <throat> that, wow, they must be so ahead of, ahead of the curve and, you know, they must be doing top secret stuff or whatever and you know they're doing everything what everyone is going to catch up to later on down the line but what was your what was your experience of that you know it's kind of like this instagram versus reality kind of thing like yeah is, is it as good as that yeah i don't know i suppose i suppose my experience of the bbc i mean the bbc means so many things to diff, you know so many different people both you know as, as an employee there but also as, as a you know as an audience member or license fee pair or whatever but i think i think what the, when the bbc does things well i think it actually doesn't it doesn't chase the first mover um, innovation 
in, a, in its pure sense. I think it's smarter than that to, to find and adopt and use technologies that will further its objectives. So if you think the BBC's you know, objectives, as Lord Reith famously laid out, to inform, educate and entertain. And I think what the BBC's done well is to look at new technologies and see how can they enhance the organization's ability to to meet those objectives, to inform, educate, and entertain. So I think when I was there, I think it was when the BBC started to really get to grips with what the internet meant. Um, I think in its earliest phases, it was, it was how could the BBC use the web and the emerging web platforms that it created uh, uh, to create new services and to seek also seek government approval for those services, which was a big part of the work that, that we were doing in, in, the, kind of, in the late 90s. Um, that, that's you know, it, it does, does the BBC have a justifiable position to take a license to serve you know audiences in, in those technologies? I think that was really interesting. I think where the BBC gets a bit more stuck is when it tries to just do the innovation, and, and I think you know that's not necessarily its best position. So I've always felt that the BBC is at its best uh, with something like iPlayer. It wasn't the first video streaming service by any means, but you know when it was most meaningfully rolled out, it was a really good use technology to help BBC audiences do something new. Um, so I think that that's where I think it's, it does well. And my experience of working with some brilliant people on, on Bite Size was the same, was what does the web and web content allow school students to do when they're revising for their exams that the BBC couldn't help them with before? So I think, I think it has a good sense of, kind of you know, offering, solving some audience problems or, or, or you know, offering audiences value in ways that they, that they couldn't do before. So, it's a it's a really interesting thing which you mentioned up there, kind of, um, the the BBC iPlayer and and you know I think mm. you see it time and time again actually the person who ends up being the front runner tends to be the person who comes second or third. Yeah. Um. So it you know I think I think that's a great example of kind of how good business works I guess. Um. Yeah. But, I mean you know we we see something like what what BBC are doing with with bite size. How was that internally because. I guess what you know, looking at my career and the places I've worked, sometimes I've seen it where what we offer externally kind of sometimes doesn't match what's happening internally. And oh yes, <laughs> yeah. So, so kind of how how yeah how was that at the BBC? I mean, w- w- could you see that in buckets, or was it was it actually quite quite a good reflection? What's should yeah, I, th- I suppose my experience at BBC as, as an employee was that, you know it is kind of. It's simultaneously uh, um, exciting and thrilling and exasperating. Um, you know, it's exasperating for all the reasons that you would know about kind of bureaucracy and kind of governmental pace and complexity of decision making. So really complicated and sometimes constipated, to be honest, you know, that you just couldn't decide anything. Um, but then at other times you're working with with some of, I think I probably never worked with smarter people than, than my time at the BBC. Some really brilliant people, very, very creative uh, um, you know, individualists with, with really smart ideas and different ways of thinking. So I, th- I think it's sort of, you know, it, in a way the BBC kind of has those two impulses competing, that, that creative spark, but also that gut sort of governmental um, decision-making. Um, so I think what you see on the outside you know, isn't necessarily matched by, by, um, by the behaviour on the inside, if that's, what you, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a good, it's a good summary. So, going from the BBC and then kind of getting to where you are right now, Mars, and obviously be mindful of kind of you know your clients and and what you can say and what you can't say. But maybe you could give us a bit of um a bit of an overview of kind of mm, let me think of the first question. Yeah, maybe what what does your day look like going from say how it was at the BBC to now? What does, what does a typical day look like for for Mars? So these days, I, I guess um, I suppose. It's probably there's probably not one single day now. I guess you know it's one of those things about being a freelancer is you you so you know when things are quiet you kind of have to make your day, um, invent your day. So so I you know I, what I'd like to be able to say is that I'm very good at, at, at finding time to write and you know and think and develop myself. But I find probably I'm not quite finding the time to do that at the moment. Um, so I I think. I guess a lot of the work that I do now is is really around asking questions. I think uh, um, and trying to help 
organizations figure out the most useful ways of answering those questions but not answering them myself um, so I think a lot therefore a lot a lot of the work that I do in a day is trying to get you know trying to uncover what those good and valuable questions look like um, and I think as well trying to keep in contact with clients is a really important point as well um, it's one of those things about working for yourself I think that that there's a balance between the objectivity and bringing an external view versus you know working in isolation and and not not sort of getting enough uh, not inheriting enough of the of the culture and the organization that you're working with as well so I think I you know I try to spend a lot of time communicating with my clients as well if I can if that makes sense that wasn't a particularly picture of a day that was elements of the work I'm doing at the moment I think no, I mean, that's just as good, right? That's just as good. It's interesting that you kind of, you mentioned kind of this culture and, you know, listen to a few of my other, pod, um, my other guests on the podcast and stuff, kind of this thing about culture right now, it's, I, I think, you know, you've got your employee experience and you've got culture and kind of everything in between. But I think you've got people who think they know what it is and then people who think they, they've sussed out the kind of, the the code to cracking culture. <clears throat> but, for you, I guess, what what do you see? Kind of, I mean, and 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 sharing some names, who you, maybe who you've seen who do culture really well, maybe not so much people who do it really bad. Maybe take them names out, but yeah, kind yeah, of, okay. yeah. Like, what what's a, what's a, the biggest? You know, what's the traits of the people who do it really well in your eyes versus them who don't? I think. Well, I suppose that there's uh, one of the things that I'm I would observe is that I think there's quite a shift in almost like there's there's a sort of old maturity of uh, cultural. Um, maturity that's old school and a new maturity that's emerging and I think the organisations that I'm most interested uh, in looking at in terms of setting direction um, for culture are the ones that exhibit a new maturity which is more about kind of individual small group decision making and a kind of open sharing uh, access to expertise access to communication speed of decision making trust you know authority uh, um is is kind of more distributed and people are trusted to, to take decisions and to make mistakes and you know and learn from them and rectify them so i think those are kind of really important hallmarks of successful culture now organizationally i think so i did some work with asos a couple of years ago i think they have some elements of that that were really uh, really impressive i think obviously that that bit in a patch commercially they're not quite doing as well as they were um uh, when I was there, although I wouldn't want to take the, the, uh, the credit for that. Um, but I think you know, they had some, some really interesting ways of working uh, and were quite open to, to those those elements. I did some work very early on with FutureLearn, um, the MOOC platform provider, in my early days of freelancing. And I think they were very good on, on all of those elements, on you know being very kind of agile with a small A and a large A and, and, and flexible and quick quick on their feet. Very good with data and very focused on data, I think, which is you know an evidence-based decision-making. So I think those are the elements of culture that feel to me are going to create sustainability for organizations you know as as things are changing so much i think those traditional um what we used to call mature culture is probably more of a challenge now um so i think a lot of the organizations i work with are really interested in trying to understand how to make that transition you know, from a sort of traditional more hierarchical um and more authority-based uh culture to to that sort of a different a different approach which is very very difficult to do but very important to try yeah it's it's an interesting one because I, I guess as soon as you kind of mention this obviously you hear the big names of oh we want to be like spotify and how does spotify yes. do and you go you're not spotify y yeah you know what will work for them will not necessarily work for you in fact the chances are it'll fail for you more than anything yeah and it's interesting because I think you have the big names like Spotify who are quite open about sharing how they do things. I think uh, Monzo do a good job of this as well, kind of yeah. sharing how they're doing things. But it's an interesting one. That it's a bit like how we see it in the tech world where, you know, Magpie Syndrome, new shiny toy, everything's got to be that. I feel yeah. like you're, still, you're seeing this in the, in the culture. Like the, the shiny tools are actually the, the, the Googles, the Spotify's, the Monzo's, the, you know, all these, these so-called... Um, the newer way of, of working and, and thinking, but it's it's still the added thing of their problem is different to your problem, and what works for them yeah. will not work for you. Yeah, I think I, I think that's right. I, I suppose I, I think though, to sort of, to, just thinking about that a little bit though, that, that I think 
what those organizations you know, that you've just mentioned have, have been smart about doing is applying what the technology allows them to do to the problems they need to solve. So it's not so much about, you know, the fact that they've come up with a tool, although it might be, it might not be about, you know, sort of mimicking their tools and technology, as you say, but it is about using the ways that they think about technology as, as a problem solving tool or as, you know, as, a, as an opportunity to change uh, you know, behavior and to change expectations, et cetera. I think that that's really interesting. Um, so as you said, you know, not everybody should think uh, um, and try and work like Spotify, but the way Spotify thinks about the platform it creates and its user experience and, you know, the value it gives to its users, I think we've probably got, there's probably some useful insights for most of us to apply some of those kind of ways of thinking to our own problems. Yeah, no, definitely. I think just kind of having this kind of human-centered approach to things is, yeah. is something what I'm I'm personally hearing more and more, which mm. I think, you know, if it's then back to, what, many years ago, when, many years ago, I'm sounding like I'm like 900 years old. Started, <laughs> no, I'm with it, you, don't worry, I'm always with you. <laughs> many years ago is a good place to start for me. But I think, you know, human-centered design wasn't a term what you use, you know, at the moment we, we, we see the big buzzwords of design thinking and, and, yes. and whatnot, but this human-centered design approach kind of fundamentally, you know, I think good designers and, and good shapers have been doing this before they knew what the term was as such. Yeah. And they've always kind of just put the human front and centre of everything they do. And, yeah, and, and I think that's of, right. Yeah, I, th- I think I suppose what, what the good what good designers do and good design, you know, as a, as a discipline, it will help your customer, audience, user, whatever you call them, to, uh, um, to get something done. Um, it solves a problem for us, I think, mostly. Um, and that's that's where I think it's really smart, you know, where and where you can apply technology to solve people's problems that's where there's there's real value and sustainable value they're offering technology because it's new and different may or may not solve a problem but it's not focusing in the right way and i think i think you know the learning and development world is is, is probably you know famous for, for for getting slightly obsessed with with the next big thing um and and actually there's a lot of value in some of the same old things but just applied in different ways or, or used to solve problems rather than just the you know published content yeah and I completely agree. I think um, Amy Baval uses a great term for this, um, and she calls it remixing. So looking at what the tech is, but actually how can we stretch and remould and reshape this tech to to kind of fix a problem of our people? Yeah. You know, I think I use it down to. Can, I was talking with David James a couple of weeks, so we're doing. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. We're, we're doing um, a talk in June. Um, and we both we've both got a talk, so I kind of shown him the flow which I was going through, and a, a large piece of it was this consumer grade experience, mm. and and I'm kind of saying, look, this consumer grade experience doesn't need to be the you know this kind of bright, beautiful piece of kit. I mean, it helps, but fundamentally, it needs to fix a problem. Like, yeah. and 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 great, good, frictionless kind of UX and and simplistic kind of approach that will will help that, but. For me, this kind of this consumer grade experience, this consumer grade tech, it kind of comes down to one being able to stack it, and actually, you know, if it, I always use this analogy of of social media. You know, I can post something out on Instagram, which I'll post out on Twitter, which will go to LinkedIn. It's one thing, but it's done it to various different things. Yeah. It's kind of this kind of can it be can it IoT kind of you know does it work with various things? And I think what we see in in the digital, if you like, the digital world of of corporates is. We want this. Um, we want this unicorn, and I think the unicorn doesn't exist. I person, I personally think it doesn't exist because it can't fit every single person's problems. It can at best probably do eight percent, and then we have to look at bolting on other things around that to make it all work frictionless. But I don't know. I, I, you know, when I when I always step back and, and when I'm with clients myself, and I go, actually, what you're talking about isn't an LMS. You're actually asking for something that's got a collaboration, community, mm. community. It's got good UX. It's scalable, and you know it can be up and down. But actually, fundamentally, it's just this got this this community of slow and fast burn. And actually, I think the more we see it in, in and 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 yeah, Matt, challenge me on this if I'm wrong. But I guess the more we see it, the more actually the more people are stepping away from this kind of very traditional MS and more going into this kind of more collaborative and. and, and yeah, collaborative and community-based approach. I think. Mm, yeah, I think that's true. I, th- I, th- I mean, I think I suppose it's so so true for you know for the L and D world, where so much of the tools uh, you know that, that we we would like to be able to use are ones that are about kind of you know 
communication and connection, communication, collaboration, connection. You know, however, I, th- I think it's where you know bringing people together or bringing people to ideas and information. So I think, and those are areas which are really, really well served in consumer technology. You know, consumer technology on the web's been developing those, you know, and experimenting with them for decades, um, and has become very, very good at meeting those needs. So I think it's quite hard to see the kind of corporate technology world m- matching that level of expectation, um, and you know, and I, th- I think that's that's a real challenge as well. I think you're right, and I, I think one of the one of the problems that the L and D world, and this is not just L and D, it's HR, it's kind of enterprise technologies generally has with consumer grade expectations, is that those expectations are always rising because there's such you know kind of white heat of competition in the consumer world. So apps and tools and technologies are always being enhanced. Um, so there's, you know, it does feel that the enterprise world is is stuck in a kind of catch up mode, um, which is which is a real challenge, I think, and it's one of the reasons why you know kind of LMS vendors are now looking quite sort of dusty and old uh, and very traditional because they they you know they are really quite a way behind now. Um, yeah, I, I've just I'm, I, it just got me thinking. Kind of one of the things which I'm talking about is actually. If you look at something, so one of the things what I've done in the past with a past client was actually I just flicked on something like an Instagram and I turned it into this kind of lockdown thing where, you know, people who work for the business can come on, join this Instagram, you know, 60 second clips, blah, 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 blah. And actually I kind of, I end up, I end up sitting back and going, actually, you look at some of these social media platforms and I use social media just because everyone knows what they are. But yeah. Fundamentally, that gives us more insight than I've seen on, on most LMSs because it, mm-hmm. it shows behaviour. It shows what actually people are really interested in. Yeah. And I've never heard anyone say, oh, oh Lorde, I can't wait to get my company's LMS. <laughs> no. Well, I think one of the things as well is if you think that, that you know, the investment and the success and failures of all these technologies and tools and brands and apps over the last 20 plus years has sort of shaped the, the technology world, I can't think of anything that looks or feels like an LMS that's ever been available out there in the open web. don't think anybody's really, there isn't really a market for it for, for, for consumers, for individuals. I can't think of an example of one anyway. So it kind of that does, if, if, that, if that hypothesis is right, then it does make you wonder that actually out there in the consumer world, there isn't a requirement for an LMS. Um, so actually, they're always going to be slightly different then, or com- fundamentally different to, to our consumer experiences, which, as you were saying, solve other problems for us and solve them in much more kind of immediate and intuitive ways as well. I think there's something else as well. There's there's something kind of fundamental in the you know the, in the, the technology business, the learning technologies business, is that those systems that we're talking about are actually their customers, aren't the users? You know, their corporate customers who are buying them. And then those corporate customers are trying to satisfy users with them. Um, but the LMS vendors aren't pitching directly at users. If they were, then they'd be building something very different. Yeah, they definitely would. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. it does pose a question, actually, and this is me just thinking outside the box here, um, whether I keep this in or not, it's another thing. But I think, so then, you know, surely that the, the right the best vendor will be the one who kind of, you know, going back to this human-centered approach, mm-hmm. actually is, is a person who kind of sits down with, pe- with the people and goes, right, what's... It, it's just got me thinking, you, you, you're spot on with regard to kind of, you know, whenever, we've had to, whenever I've had to bring in LMS vendors, they've never really asked what, what the problems are. It's kind of just always been, this is, this is what it is and this is a problem. Yeah. And here's, a, here's our feature set, which is a spreadsheet of... 400 different things that the system can do if you wanted to or whatever yeah yeah i think there is something that that i think there's something that that signals now that things could change and this is a maybe but i think now this idea of learning in the flow of work has started to shift i think where organizations might focus their technology investment that on top of the software as a service uh, entry of software as a service tools to corporations things like zoom and slack and now Microsoft Teams as well, which is kind of a response to Slack, I guess. Um, the, the integration with those, the tools of work, could be a, a, an opportunity for, you know, for LMS systems and other mm-hmm. learning uh, technologies to, to try and sort of regain some relevance. Um, you have to integrate in a smart way that's, that's useful. You know, we wouldn't want to sort of you know, have a SCORM object dropped into your Slack channel. 
Um, mm. I just imagine that sounds that feels horrible. Um, but it, it, but having you know, con- context and um, and communication uh, uh, sensitive material or you know bookings etc. surfaced, I think that's that starts to feel like it. There might be some opportunity to recover some ground for some of the systems providers there. Well, it, it was interesting. I was having a talk with uh, Mark from Filtered. Yeah. Um, and and I was kind of saying, you know, we were talking a while back, and I was like, look, the first vendor what can tap into the calendar of your users will be the one what succeeds. And I think by budding up with something like Teams now, I think you're going to see that. You know, the, mm. and this is me blue sky thinking, but I think you know, as soon as you can have something what kind of taps into your calendar, and I know I'm going to say a meeting to have a difficult conversation. And it goes, hey, I can see here you've got a difficult meeting coming up. Here's some quick support tool or, or something kind of. And then I think that, that becomes that more flowy and, and kind of flowing when you're moving from one touch point to another. But I think yeah. I think the argument is to tap into the, the calendar more than, more than, because I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe I'm, I'm way off. But for me, I think it would be great if, something in the back end control my looked at my calendar and went okay he's got difficult conversation here he's got project management over here he's got x over there and actually it starts being able to lay in the information yeah yeah i think i think you're right i think probably that the, the route may be that actually for for a, a really useful learning context that a learning technology might respond to actually we need not it need data that isn't learning data so it might be from your calendar. It might be from email, and there's obviously privacy implications there. It might be from your, you know, your, your IM channel or you know your Slack group, whatever. It, you know that, that that's the context. That information defines the context where you know, injecting or placing some learning in in could could become most relevant and helpful. But I don't think learning data is going to offer that insight. Of, of your context as a user does that make sense yeah no no I, yeah no I completely agree completely agree I think another thing which kind of I was thinking about and this was probably 2014 I think it was um, I kind of sat back I was I was in I was working for a, a corporate I sat back and went actually we just have so much untapped space like you know but, but none of us we looked at kind of IOT and stuff like that and I was like We've got so much untapped potential of there's a period when I walk from here to the lift and a period where I'm in the lift to the fifth floor or whatever. And these are all learning moments where we're escaping. And I say mm-hmm. learning moments, I use that, that term lightly, but for moments which I think is untapped potential. And I guess, and, and this is just probably a question, have you seen any any business which is kind of tapping into the physical envi- environment and, and being able to bring the use... I just I see personally I see the physical environment as this organic thing which moves and flows. Well, mm. what should move and flow with its people? Um, yeah, I, ha- I haven't seen that in a learning context. I guess you see it, you know, in, in maybe in environmental context for advertising, you know, where commercial messages, uh, you know, where your, you know, maybe your your location is recognised and something happens contextually around you, you know, with a suggestion or you know, I, I suppose, and there are. Maybe it's an extension of these kind of, you know, these kind of intrusive dating apps, where there's someone like you is, is, you know, is nearby. I don't know, so I'm slightly speculating there. I haven't seen that in a learning context, no. But hmm. I, I think there probably is value there. Interesting, interesting. So I guess let's move on to a little bit about you, oh, Miles. Okay. Uh, we just went off on a tangent then. Um, no, yeah, sorry, it seemed, seemed interesting. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. But I think you know, coming back to kind of this. This thing of when it comes to kind of you know the work and I've had I've had various discussions about the work you and the the outside of work you and how really they should be the same to a mm. point. Um, but when it comes to interviews, you know we see kind of we've got to be the best version of us and we've got to tell people about all our, our success stories and whatever else. Yeah. But actually, I feel like there's more value to find out. Actually, tell me a bit more about your failures. Um, so if I was to ask you the question of you know. What would your what would your failure resume look like? What, what would uh, okay. that look like? What, what might what would be my famous failures? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's one. I, I think there's one. Um, this is going back into the history. But seeing as you, you said you're old enough to remember Jeeves, I, uh, we actually in the UK we killed Jeeves, um, and uh, uh, not you know. <laughs> Well, we did, I suppose, and it, that's how we talked about it. So we, we took it had a long discussion that had been going on for years about whether we should be asked.com, the search engine, 
know, and no, noticing, you know, the fact that Google was kind of eating the world even back then and was just very focused on a precise, relevant experience. Or should we be Jeeves, the branded experience? And I was on the camp of, no, let's get rid of Jeeves. The future's in the technology and the relevance and the commercial future is in the advertising industry and the, you know, sponsored links, uh, which was true. But I think what, what I think I underestimated then was how important Jeeves as a brand icon was to, to, to why people would choose the product and also how hard or impossible it would have been and was to, to compete with Google you know, on, on their engineering with their engineering might just the number the number and the size of the brains they had we couldn't ever get the same number or uh, uh, the same size of brains um so i think i think that was a mistake definitely no it should have should have stuck with jeans created a, a more maybe a kind of personal assistant like uh, branded experience yeah. more of a more of a personal problem solving engine than just a search engine perhaps that probably would have taken a quite a lot of engineering as well but i think Getting rid of Jeeves was was a bad idea, but I was a proponent. I wanted to kill Jeeves um, as well, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and we did. And I think we were wrong. It's it's really interesting. You bring up this kind of so you know you look at Google now, and Google is well the beast that Google is. But kind of talking about Ash Jeeves there, you know, more and more, mm. I think we're coming into this experience economy, and, and actually we we demand more. It's a bit like you kind of you know when you're boxing, you know, if you're a world class boxer, you're only remembered for the last fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think you know when you look at something like Ash Jeeves, you know hindsight is a great thing. But actually, yeah. when you look at that now and you look at kind of where voice assistance is going and, yeah. and this experience, actually Ash Jeeves would have been a great brand. You know, yeah. Personal. Yeah. You'd imagine, Je- yeah, Jeeves. Jeeves as a personal assistant with with you know chat voice uh, conversational interface that would be yeah. perfect. Well, perfect for lots of people, not for everybody. Yeah, that is very true. That is very yeah. true. Yeah. Oh, okay, so next couple of questions there from us. These can be fast track questions. We can go as deep as you want on them as well. Right. So if you were to give a gift um, of a book to five people, what book would you give? And maybe it can be what's the one book what's, what's changed your life, your mindset and stuff and what you think five people should read? Oh, uh, okay. I think I yeah, that's that's a good one. I, I think there's a book I read a long time ago and reread. I don't reread many books at all. I don't read enough uh, as much as I'd like. There, there's a book called Gone to Soldiers by Marge Piercy, and it's an amazing kind of saga of various different characters' uh, lives uh, and how they survive or don't through the Second World War in various different countries. And it's just a, a, an absolutely a, a beguiling and fascinating story of totally different worlds and how that Second World War changed their lives completely. Yeah, so I, I'd highly recommend that to anybody. I'd recommend some more than five people if I could. Okay, okay. I've personally never heard of that, so we'll put that yeah, on so the Yeah, so that sprung to mind. I read it, it must be 25 plus years ago that I read that, but it's a really, really great story. Wow, okay. That's kind of sound to the experience what you had. The experience it's left in you. It's, that's, yeah. It's quite impressive. Yeah, I don't know why I hadn't thought about that for a long time. So thank you for reminding me. Maybe I need to read it a third time. <laughs> so so going back to this kind of, um, this is more about more about you, Miles, more than anything, but kind of you've, you've bought a billboard and this billboard's right outside the stadium, which 100 people are going to come out of in the next, I don't know, next hour. A million people, sorry. A million, a million people, people. Yeah, a million people. And they're going to see your billboard. What uh-huh. would you put on that billboard? So a million people are going to see what I put on the billboard uh, as they come out. Hmm. I would say, I would say, relax. Hardly anybody knows what they're doing, really. Okay. <laughs> wow, that's so, true. I, don't, I would probably can't. I, I would. I would ask a copywriter to refine that sentiment. I think. But the idea being that in my experience now of being, you know, being an adult and being a worker of various different types, most of us are making it up as we go along, partly because most of us are trying to do something new and different as well. So, you know, I think quite often people who seem very, very confident know exactly what they're doing actually don't really know. That's true. I think, you know, we we see these kind of studies, what are are happening, kind of the future skill set. I think the future skill set is being able to wing it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the ability to improvise is really, really important. Yeah, really important for vital survival skill, definitely. So I guess this kind of goes more towards your, your um, 
because I kind of want to get into this experience design. You know, I think you put a post out <laughs> recently and we talked about that a little bit on LinkedIn and stuff. Um, oh, yes, yes, okay. But I guess, who who do you see who's doing cool stuff? Um, yeah, and this can be this can be maybe your customers or, you know, people who you've seen on LinkedIn and whatever else. But maybe it's more about the corporate, which businesses mm. do you see doing? cool stuff yeah okay I, well I think I was I, I spent quite a lot of time I haven't worked with them so much recently but one of my first clients when I when I was freelancing was the John Lewis partnership and I did some work with them very early on as I, I suppose it was one of one of the first things I did was sort of spent a few days just looking at their digital learning content services in, 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 within the organization uh, the different products and tools they were using and did a bit of a kind of a UX review of them and then uh, I've worked with them over uh, over then a few years. And one of the things that they did that was really, I think, really interesting uh, um, was they set up a UX team in their in the HR function. So there's actually now there's a guy who now runs. He's I, I can't remember his job title, but he runs the user experience team. His team are now responsible for uh, UX reviews and planning and testing for a variety of different products and systems. And I, I, I think it's, it's again, it's back to that thing that you were saying, Danny. I guess about the mindset versus the making. Um, and I think one of the things that they've really done that's interesting is they, they've sort of really, really started to adopt that mindset, and now network with you know they have various different sort of testing tools and, and services. They work with the John Lewis, uh, I think John Lewis Online Retail. I can't remember what the name of the product is. Um, so you know that, and I, th- I think they've really started to establish that user experience and experience design as, as a really important part of, of the world in learning, but also beyond learning. So I think that that was really interesting. And I guess as a consultant, it was kind of really gratifying to work with them on that as well. I wouldn't want to claim credit for the, the success of it, but you know, I was involved with some of their early early plans and thinking and you know, helped them with some workshops and that kind of stuff. So I think that that's one of the really interesting examples from my client work. Cool, cool. Which then moves on seamlessly into the experience design uh, learning experience okay. design so yeah mm-hmm. i mean maybe maybe as you could give us a bit of a, a brief overview of, of that kind of i think it was a i can't remember if it was an article now or it was just a status what you put out there around learning experience designers and ah uh, yeah i remember i think this was something i posted a blog post maybe two, two or three weeks ago yeah about where where, where and how do you um, where do you find your learning experience designers or how do you build a learning experience design capability um so I think, well, I, I, and this is this is true of many many clients I've worked with, and a few currently, and, and in the past as well, where they're trying to make a change from, you know, from from the creation of content or instructional design background and heritage to a more uh, kind of agile and broad based um, experience design um, capability. So that would include, you know, all kinds of experiences, I guess. Um, and one of the things that trying to fi- that I think a lot of organisations are trying to figure out is, and it, this was put simplistically in the blog post because you know people read blog posts when they have simplistic clickbait titles. <laughs> but would would you, uh, if you had to choose, would you create learning experience designers from your existing team and sort of school them in the ways of, of user experience and experience design from a learning background? Or would you bring in experienced designers and UX practitioners from outside the learning world and then school them in the ways of learning in your organization? Um, and I guess that's a lot. I, th- I think one of the reasons I wrote the blog post was I think you know, learning experience design is very fashionable at the moment. I don't think, I, you know, I don't know what you think, Dan, but it seems to be a very, um, it's an often used phrase. And I think a lot of people are looking for learning experience designers a lot of people are claiming to be learning experience designers so it's kind of hot it's a hot segment of, of the recruitment market as well so i, I want the reason I, I wrote the post was just trying to sort of think that through you know, as if you had to choose if you can't find learning experience designers but you can find ux designers or you have got uh, uh instructional designers or you've got you know other uh learning designers then you know w- which, which direction would you go in um so, so that's what I was trying to sort of ponder in that blog post, and, and I thought it was a I thought it was a great blog post. I, I think I, I wrote on there about actually I don't think learning experience design is a thing anyway. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, I just try to be a little bit provocative, but I kind of for me, I, you know, the thing what 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 really grinds my gears, and it's not I don't think it's R and D specific. I think it's just you know it's it's every industry. But what I've noticed is all of a sudden lots and lots of people have changed their job title from instructional designer to learn experience designer. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, 
And and when learning experience designer becomes less buzzy and something else comes in, I'll see that change. <laughs> yeah. And then that'll change again. And, and I kind of think, actually, the more things try to change, the more they stay the same. And I guess for me, I I dropped a learning experience designer as a title a good while ago. Because, right. I mean, if I look at where I'm at right now, my role is... Depends who you ask. Um, my role is either learning consultant or learning experience architect, which okay, which is another, another, <laughs> another term. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, I don't think learning experience designers exist. I think experience designers exist, and a byproduct of that is a learning experience, or it's a immersive experience or an educational mm-hmm. one or a, a um aesthetic experience or, or whatever yeah but i think you i think you mentioned back about actually you know good shout but it's kind of like this it's kind of just this rephrasing of old things and i think i think the way the way i'm, I'm kind of the way i kind of ponder around this is more around actually I think to, before we can address what the job title should be and what it should be, I think we should really address what what the future L and D team should look like. Like if if, if I was given, um, you know, if I'm if I'm to lead up a team like I've done in the past, I don't know how much I would reach out to the L and D industry. I think that's a really good question. And I, I think it's back. It's back to that. Some of the things we were talking about a moment ago you know, about what what are the forces that are shaping the L and D world, and the forces that are shaping the L and D world are from outside the world of L and D, and the L and D world is trying to catch up, and respond. Yeah. So, so I think you're right. If if that's true, and I think most people would recognise that that's true, then you should probably look outside for the people who have the insights and skills and experience that you'd want to build your service on. So, so. I remember when um, I think yeah you know Nick Shackleton Jones right I remember yes. when I very first went working for Nick it was um, he asked me this question he was like how do you stay on top of it I went I don't look at anything what's happening in L&D and he's like why and I was like because if I do what everyone in L&D is doing it's always going to be the same so a lot of the stuff which I do I take from product design service design I mm-hmm. take a lot from kind of experience design I, I take a lot from marketing actually and comms engagement so yeah so when I look at the team and, and you know someone says to me and I put a, I put a I put a, a comment out on LinkedIn actually last week and I was like hmm is L and D really needed anymore like you know I can't I can't even remember how I, how I phrased it but it was like oh you know some people felt like I was taking a job off him and uh, I was okay. like yeah. and I was like well at the end of the day. You're, you're, you're turning around to me and saying, hmm, you know, you need to be able to design a good onboarding program. A service designer could do that. Given the right context, the right information yeah. and Google, he'll probably be able to design a lot better onboarding program than what you can design. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think one of the things that's interesting as well, you can see this starting to happen, is that digital agencies starting to move in either accidentally or deliberately into, you know, kind of L&D um, digital projects. You know, these are kind of, you know, communications and branding and advertising agencies and product product development agencies who, who, because of what you were saying, are quite capable of offering a really, really good service to a client, but they don't have the L&D background and they don't, but arguably they don't need it. I yeah. think they can bring in, you know, they're good, they're good at, you know, at content creation, they're good at the editorial skills, they're good at the marketing skills, they're good at the product management, I think, which is a really important area. Um, they're very good at product development and management. They're good at problem solving and they're good at using data and testing. And then they apply those skills and those ways of working to a learning challenge and come by coming up with some really interesting and creative solutions. And they haven't got a learning background. And I think I think that's interesting. So maybe the role of L&D there is to you know, create the brief for them, um, but sort of step away from, from the, the design and build. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like it, the way I see it is, when we look at someone who does a design thinking, and, and first thing they want to do is empathise. They've been using skills as such as kind of audience interviews and whatever else. They've been using this for years. Yeah. I, 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 you know, in LD, I'm still struggling to see people who are doing this well. I'm like, actually, they're probably well, they are way ahead of the curve anyway. Um, so just quickly looking at stats now, it had six thousand views, twenty nine comments. And but predominantly most of them all kind of went for the yes they should keep it, and okay. I still disagree. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, well, I, I think it's probably as well, you know, it's probably not quite as simple as that. I think one of the things that, that technology has done is allowed, it makes it very, very easy for people to, to make our own stuff. So you can now do that in house. So actually, if you need to do kind of tactical quick turnaround stuff, do you want to go outside for that? Maybe you can, you know, make videos and write blog posts, et cetera, within the L&D team yourself. Um, so I think it's never quite as simple as only going outside of those skills and capabilities. Um, I think, I think you know, the fact that you can do things easily has been one of the L&D's biggest problems. Though, I think we're all guilty of making content when we don't need to. Um, so I think it, it is it's quite complicated. But, but I, th- I think if, if you've got, I would say, if you want to do something innovative and new, kind of product development side, then, then I think you probably do need to, to, to look outside or it would, be, it would be healthy to. Yeah, I mean, and this kind of, the reason why I brought this up is because I think once we define what, what that team is and what that kind of, you know, what, what that, and that, let's use the term new L&D looks like, at, from that point onwards, then we can describe what the job title should be. Because yeah. I think if you ask if you ask twenty different people now what kind of experienced design is, uh, you're going to get twenty different answers on, on on what on what that is. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's true, and that's one of the challenges now, isn't it? It means everything and nothing. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like at some, you know, job titles probably mean nothing anyway most of the time now. But it's an interesting. It's it. It was kind of good because it got me thinking. It you know it got me triggered to kind of think actually. You know, I mean, God forbid if I, if I lead up a team. <laughs> Go for it. Do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the old L&D team. Mind you, there's an opportunity for development, so why not? Yeah, yeah, there's always an opportunity. So so I guess I kind of, just moving a little bit away from, from kind of the L&D space as such, but this can be a deep question for you. So, Miles, mm-hmm. do you even like yourself? Do I like myself? Um, I'm, at times, but but I would say probably infrequently. I think the older you get, maybe the, the more you realise your kind of weakness and failures. I think most of the time I put up with myself, um, and <laughs> and I think sometimes I'm quite pleased with what I get done, and and inevitably other times I'm appallingly ashamed of myself as well. So I'd say I I cross the spectrum there. I think I have my moments, but there are many varied moments, and they're dark and light. Okay. Okay. Great answer. Great answer. So this kind of moves me on to social media. Yeah, I'm, now, I'm now thinking about that question far too hard. So I'm staring, <laughs> yeah. I'm staring out the window, pondering that. It's you, quite uncomfortable. So yeah, let's move on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I guess kind of, and it kind of it kind of goes in, in, into this question really. You know, do you even like yourself? I think if we ask that question before social media, you probably get a lot more yeses and nos. Um, yes. Yeah. But kind of social media, I think recently, I think it might have been you actually who shared it around Twitter's approach to trolling and, and negative behaviour. I think it was you. I've got this in my back of mind. I think you either shared it or you you wrote something about it. But kind of social media, mm-hmm. do you think it's a net positive or net negative to society? Oh, that's a, that's a good and very difficult question. I think I think... Um, I would have definitely said it's a net positive. I, I think you know I was very much one for the kind of democracy of communication, um, and now now I actually now I don't think I don't think it's possible to know at the moment how to answer that question. I think we've seen some really dangerous uh, um, behaviour manipulation uh, um, on on social media, you know, and it re- and it really started to take hold in in very very dark. And, and unpleasant ways, you know, both individually and uh, and, and you know, in trying to influence large groups and politically as well. Um, so I, I think I don't think we can answer that question at the moment, Danny. I don't I don't think we know, and I don't think we have the information to be able to to be able to say one way or the other. Um, but I think I think it's definitely changed, and I hope and my hope is that people are more aware that it's not just a good thing. It's not simply an innocent pastime anymore. It has implications. Um, and you need to, you know, we need to think about it harder than we used to. I think. Okay. Okay. So then, applying that question, what's what's your take on the L and D social media presence? So let's let's put you in the user's shoes. So when you wake up in the morning, you go on LinkedIn. I'm assuming you get, you check your phone when you get in, but you know you maybe don't. But you go on LinkedIn, you go on Twitter, and mm-hmm. if anything, if your timeline is anything like mine, it's for lots and lots of people having lots and lots of rants or 
Uh, both in their yeah. opinion. But what's, what's your take on the L and D social media space? So I, I don't I don't think we have enough kind of constructive discussion in, in social media. I think, and I think this is probably not just true of L and D, but that's yeah, that's you know that's the community, one of the communities I know best, I guess. Um, well, I, I think you know there, there's inevitably there's elements of kind of showing off and look at me, which is one of the most horrible patterns of behavior in social media all round. But I think um, I, I think there's an opportunity for us to have more kind of constructive disagreement than we do. I think there's more. I think there's lots of uh, um, probably it's probably not enough variety of tone in there. I think someone like you know Donald Clark's very good on, on, on you know, getting getting debate going. I think Nick's good at that as well, um, but I think I, d- I don't think we have enough proper discussion um, on social media as, as an industry. I don't know. What do you think? Um, this is an hard question for me to answer because when I when I got into LD years ago, I found it an absolute struggle to get my voices heard, my ideas right. heard, because it's kind of them people at the top tend to stay at the top until they either retire or die. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, yeah, it's an, an age-old pattern of behaviour, that isn't it? Yeah, so it it kind of got me thinking. Like, I understand, you know, maybe your idea, you maybe your ideas are great and the fantastic, but actually, if if you're not getting your speaking gigs and you're not getting your opportunities, and you know, maybe maybe sometimes you have to do that on on social media to kind of shout your ideas. The problem is, is the limitation mm-hmm. in characters and, like you mentioned, the tone and how that how that goes. We've actually, you know. I know for a fact that I have dyslexia, so when I tweet, my tweets are right. full of made-up words. But, like, talking, you can hear where, you know, my, my flow in my conversation. Um, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of regurgitation. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes the regurgitation becomes a noise and then some of the best ideas are kind of, you know, forgotten. Which yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that's one of the challenges with social media at the moment is that you know because there is so much noise that, that the good ideas and healthy discussion, useful discussion, can be very hard to notice and hard to pick out. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. But yeah, I can. This this leaves me on to kind of who are three people who you think everybody should be following, and this is in the L and D space. Maybe it's new up and comers. Maybe it's people you've worked with in the past. Any three three people, please. Okay, so there's a guy uh, who I've worked with. He's one of these digital agencies called Russ Hendy, H-E-N-D-Y. Um, he's he runs an agency called Tui Media, or Tui Digital Media, maybe I can't remember the name. Um, he's he's good. He's written something really interesting recently on Medium about um, learning technologies as a developer from the outside. He, he's 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 a good value, I think. Uh, I've always, oh, I like David James as well. He's a good provocateur in this space, I think. And I know you spoke with him, David. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think he, he's, yeah, so I think I would say he's good value. Um, and for a third one, there's a guy called Mark Britz, B-R-I-T-Z, um, or Z rather, because he's in North America, I think. Um, uh, and he's very good on social collaboration, culture, um, He's really, really good on that stuff. He's very thoughtful, very experienced as well. So those are three people I would recommend. Awesome. Okay. So it's kind of with, with that in kind of that in mind, and you know, I'm going to dip into a little bit more. And this is this what I want you to do here, Mars, is don't think too much about these answers. So I'm going to give okay. you some buzz. So I'm going to give you some words. And I want you to tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Word association. Correct. It can okay. be absolutely anything. It could just literally be. How you feel about it, or just something that comes to mind? I so, hope my vocabulary is in order. Let's see. <laughs> just do. I do make words up. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so the first one, e-learning. Uh, historic. Okay. Digital transformation. Overblown and overused. Okay. LMS. Dangerous. And the last one, instructional designers. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Okay. Okay. okay that, that was, those were four, but so I now recognise that with the digital world, that this will get distributed, and in years to come, uh, possibly if anybody still cares, there might be moments of regret. But those were those were immediate, off the cuff responses. Perfect. Perfect. So, I guess kind of going back to you know your development, and and you mentioned you you don't you know you get time to kind of read and write, but actually, mm. when when was the last time? You was putting, you know, took out your comfort zone in in a form of a development opportunity. Um, 
Well, I think I think starting up as a freelancer has been a big one, uh, um, and sort of understanding what that really means. I think you know on a personal and professional level, that's that's been really really interesting. Learn you know learn just all, all sorts of different uh, things about you know kind of what your pitch is, what your value is. Can you pitch it? Should you do it? Um, that's been really interesting and ongoing as well. I think I'm still still learning a lot uh, about that. Um, I'm doing a project at the moment where, where we're working with one client on sort of L&D capability build and change and working with a team of people that I didn't really know and work with before. Uh, and that's been great because there's lots of new ideas, uh, different ways of thinking, different ways of working, uh, and all of us trying to help, you know, sort of pitch in uh, uh, to, to make the project as, as effective as possible. So that's been, <clears throat> that's been really good. And as having worked for quite a few years on my own, coming back to the team environment, having that you know plurality of voices and experiences is, is really good as well and some challenge and debate you know which when you work on your own can be hard to find um so i've, I've really enjoyed that and, and interestingly against what we've been saying perhaps you know working with with some thoroughbreds of the learning and development world and and, and that's teaching me a lot because it's not my background um so that's been really interesting as well so, so to sort of get a sense of of some of the more important themes on your point of you know these these aren't necessarily new ideas but the reason that they still work is because they're strong ideas um and that has been good to sort of to, to get to grips with some of that thinking as well okay perfect so i guess coming just kind of coming back coming to the end now what what five tips would you give to someone who wants to be the next miles and, and kind of go through the career and stuff <laughs> what you've done <laughs> someone who wants to be the next miles i think i would certainly question their uh, their wisdom um so, so someone who's going to follow a similar path is that yeah Danny? I, I i would i would say uh, um it would be it's really really important to keep you know keep looking for good ideas um keep looking as you were saying as well you know keep keep your eye on what's going on outside um in the outside world um i would say that that um it's really important to spend a lot of time communicating as well um you know with your team uh, if you're a, you know if you're a team leader and i've done a lot of that you need to communicate consistently uh and, and as openly as possible so i think i think that would be another tip um I would say I think something that that I think has been really really important for me is is always look for, always look for data and evidence. Um, you know, never never take anything on assumptions. Uh, I think I think that's really important. I think I I would say, uh, and this is not necessarily because I've done it, but because I now think it's true, is try and work on things that are really important to you. Um, you know, things that you care about wherever you can. Um, I refuse to use the word. The, the, the P word, the passion works. I think I, I find that overstated, but something, you know, focus on things that you care about um, because that's where you'll work your best and work your hardest. Um, and and I, I think probably, so that's four, uh, that the fifth would be maybe try and, you know, try and find people that you enjoy working with as well. Um, I think, which is probably related to the other one. If you, know, if you, if you work with, work on, on things that you care about, you're probably going to find the people that you like to work with as well. So I think those are sort of two related points that, that are really important. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. So I guess at the start of the show, I kind of asked you to pick five, um, five numbers and we will come to ah, them yeah. shortly. But I guess just one more question really. Um, so, you know, we, when I asked you at the start kind of what it is you wanted to be, when you um, when you grew up and you mentioned, I think you said a quick and a music musician. Mm. You know, we we never continue to you know we never stop growing and developing ourselves. And if I was to say, kind of, what is it you want to be now, Miles? What is it you want to be when you grow up? I'd still want to be a musician. I think music's always been so important, you know, in my life since I was very small through to now. You know, listening to it, playing it, talking about it, finding new things to listen to. So I think, uh, yeah, that would be. I'd, I'd love to be a musician still. If only I had the talent and the time. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So the six, the, the four numbers. So the idea yeah. is, you are based on a desert island, um, right? And these four numbers are associated to four random. Uh, well, the numbers are associated to a list of random items. The items that you picked was a canvas, a uh-huh. key ring, a nail file, and a screw. A screw. Yeah. A canvas. A canvas like a. a- Painting, painting canvas. Yep. A key ring. Yep. A nail file and a screw. Uh, so I would use the canvas to to try and draw or paint 
the most beautiful picture that I could of, of, of a scene or a person that's not on the desert island. Uh, and I would hang that on a tree with the screw. Um, a key, what was the key ring and what was the other one? Um, it was a nail file. A nail file. Um, so I think I would use the nail file to file my nails because I'm clearly quite literal after all. <laughs> And I would use the key ring to, to hang uh, some of the more important tools that I've created to, to survive from uh, on the on the, on the tree as well. Okay, awesome. I have to I have to admit, Miles, you've had the hardest one so far. To be fair, because really, that did feel difficult. <laughs> so hence hence using the nail file to file nails. That doesn't feel, <laughs> that doesn't feel very creative, but it's the best I could come up with. So I guess, Miles, just before we go, where can people find out a little bit more about what you're up to and your ideas? Uh, so I guess um, uh, uh, on LinkedIn, um, so just find me there and uh, and on Twitter um, at Miles Run, M-Y-L-E-S-R-U-N. Uh, and that's where I would post uh, things and sort of thoughts and ideas and reflections on my blog as well, which is at milesrunham.com. Uh, so those are probably the three places that, that you'd find me most usefully. Awesome. Well, Miles, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Danny. I enjoyed that. It's a great conversation. Good questions. Thank you. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of the evening, Miles. Thank you. And you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.